Welcome to the Life Sciences WA Investment Series. Investor meets innovator. Hosted by Dr. Tracy Wilkinson, Director for Stakeholder Engagement WA at MTP Connect, WA Life Sciences Innovation Hub, and me, Peter Birch, from Talking Health Tech. In this limited podcast series, we've brought together a number of conversations with experts from medical science to finance to help demystify investing in biotech, medtech, and digital health, also known as the life sciences. In the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connection to land, seas, and community. We pay respect to elders past, present, and emerging, and extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. The information in this podcast is general in nature and should not be taken as a substitute for professional or financial advice. I have mixed emotions, Tracy. Because this is the last one. This is the last episode. I, I've just started, by the way. But <laughs> it's, it's the last one. That's this the is last the one last history. one. And, now, and I have like, so you know, many more ideas and so many more maybe, conversations we want to have. So. Maybe, maybe it's last of season one. Who knows? But Let's it's the, but for this for this point in time, we're, we're putting a cap on these conversations that we've been having throughout this series relating to investing in life sciences and WA. And this next conversation, again, as we have in previous discussions, it was it was another uh, individual who brings two perspectives one from a, a science side and then into the the analyst perspective as well. So great, great looking at both sides of the fence here. Yeah, absolutely. So I think you had a really great conversation with Tara. It's perfect to end the series on. Yeah. So in this discussion, I spoke with Tara Speranza. She talks about her work as a healthcare and biotech analyst at Bell Potter Securities. My name is Tara Speranza and I'm a healthcare and biotech analyst at Bell Potter Securities. Bell Potter is a securities firm that runs a number of different departments. We, of course, are our broker. So we have both retail and institutional sales and advisors. And perhaps a lot of your listeners may be retail clients of some of our advisors at Bell Potter. But we also certainly have a sales desk that deals with large institutional and firm investors. So that's one major part of Bell Potter. Then, of course, there's us in the research team. So we are all analysts and we cover various sectors. I am in a group of three of us who cover the healthcare and biotech sector. So we call ourselves healthcare analysts. We cover all of the companies in Australia who have listed on the ASX who are under that healthcare umbrella, shall we say. And our research uh, covers a number of factors within each of these companies. And perhaps we can talk about that a little bit later as we get into that. Bell Potter also has a corporate finance department. These are the people that help to manage and underwrite, sometimes underwrite, listings, IPOs and capital raises for companies who are on the ASX. Got it. And so your background is a bit varied too, as I understand. Talk to me a bit more about your experience in healthcare and biotech. Yes, I'm actually a molecular biologist by training. So I was a student at the University of Sydney many moons ago. Don't want to give away my age. <laughs> Long enough. <laughs> yeah, that's right. 
So I ended up doing a PhD. So my technical skill background is molecular biology and my field is in endocrinology or more specifically the endocrine control of the musculoskeletal system. During my PhD, I was working on a couple of molecules used to activate the calcium sensing receptor, which some of you may know is located in many parts of the body, many tissues in the body. We all know it's in the parathyroid gland, but it's also on bone cells. And we found that activating it with strontium, magnesium, as well as calcium, gadolinium, a whole number of tri and divalent cations could activate it, but in varying manners. So activating slightly different pathways or at different efficacies of those pathways. And at the same time, a French pharmaceutical company that most people know of, Servier, were doing something very similar. At some point, Servier approached us after our work started to become a bit more noticed and we started to work very closely with them. They were also doing something very similar without recognising that it was working through the calcium sensing receptor. And so in the end, we signed a very one-sided contract with Servier. I will say the date, this is back in 2004, where basically it was a swooping and taking, shall we say. (laughs) Look, Sevier were very generous with funding and whatnot, and certainly I enjoyed every part of that experience and I don't regret it for a second. But that drug ended up on the market, not in the USA, so the SDA rejected the drug, but every other major region of the world picked it up, including Australia. The drug is now restricted because of some side effects, but it's still available for patients with osteoporosis if they don't respond well to some of the major drugs. You don't have to go into those at the moment, but it is an option for clinicians to prescribe for non-responders to the major osteoporotic, anti-osteoporotic drugs, and also those who are a lot older with severe osteoporosis and might be on one or more drugs. So anyway, that's a bit of my background. So certainly I worked with Servier, was with them a lot and had a lot of discussions around the processes of regulatory approvals in all the different regions and having something in from your own laboratory picked up by major pharma. So wasn't particularly lucrative for myself, the university or anyone else except for Servier, but that's not, it's slightly different in that we were very much an academic research laboratory run by my supervisor at the time, who was very much a teaching and research academic at no point trying to branch out to create her own biotech or anything like that. So this particular set of events was maybe somewhat different to what one might go through if they were setting up their own biotech company. However, certainly saw the process of working with large pharma and the regulation process. Well, I was going to say, you've got this quite unique experience then taking from that example that you just spoke to everywhere from literally being in the lab or doing the research and building the thing and then going through that regulatory and commercial discussions and then coming across into the bigger entity. And then now in, in your work, there's you see it from that side as well. So you must have a bit of a holistic view about how the whole kind of life cycle works, right? Yeah, I think that it's a really good set of experience, my background. And I think that since that time, I've then went on and did a postdoc in Geneva. And then I've come back, had an NHMRC fellowship to come back to Australia and then began my own lab. And there was ended up becoming a continuing academic at the University of Sydney, which meant that I wasn't required to continue applying for those fellowships, which is really tricky. 
for researchers. So that was a lot better, but it also meant that I had to do a lot of teaching. And in the end, the teaching, which was supposed to be 40% of my time, was more like 90%. Yeah, so I did an MBA in finance to learn how to do proper financial modelling with and knowing full well I had my eyes on the prize. I knew I wanted to be a healthcare analyst. I went straight after it. So, yeah, then I spent 20 years as a research scientist and then the last 13 as a researching, maybe the last 10 research and teaching scientists. It gives me the teaching, despite the fact that it was probably one of the reasons I left, it was very, it took up a lot of personal time. So there was not a lot of time left for my family. I have a child and a husband and other external extra family. It was quite tricky, but I will say this about the teaching after that many years of teaching so many different body systems in physiology and molecular biology. The background I have is not just in the specific specialty field that my research was in, but also whole body systems, which is why I think it just has set me up for this particular role that I do now really well in that, yes, okay, if it's an endocrine drug, I'm going to be all over it with the biotech. But then, of course, it doesn't actually matter if it's a cardiophysiology. I taught every single body system for so many years, over and over, to medicine, medical science, bioengineering, dentistry, nursing, student. It's really made the transition really yeah. good. And is there anything that you think from a someone from a purely science or medical side might not totally understand from the, let's say, investor side or, and vice versa, then seeing it from the other side as an analyst, anything that you think that those without experience might not totally appreciate that is happening, say, on the other side of the fence, since you can feel it from both? Sure. So let's start with your first point. What would a medical scientist not recognize from the investor's point of view? The first and the biggest thing is this idea that every single laboratory around the world is working on something that they feel is the most important thing. Now, let's just put this in context. If you ever go to one of those large research conferences that are field specific, every day, let's say you have a three, four day conference or even longer, every single day you have a whole full of hundreds of people presenting their posters and actually they have to take their poster down at the end of the day so that the next lot of people can present. So every one of those posters from every one of those labs is probably quite good research, if not fantastic research, but very few of those are going to make it from the bench to the bedside. There are a lot of high hopes and I love the optimism. However, the rigour with which the research has to be facilitated through the whole process, it's not available to everybody. So the first thing to remember, the cost, the money, the likelihood that what you're doing in a mouse or in a cell culture model works the same way in humans or that the addressable market is simply not big enough for somebody or a group of investors or a large pharma company to have any interest in it, that the competition is a lot tougher than one might believe when you're working with your blinkers on in your own lab. And I'm not saying that scientists have their blinkers on. I don't mean it like that. I think I am a scientist background and I think that all the work is really important. So I just want to make that really clear, but just to be aware that very difficult to generate interest in one piece of research. This is why things like collaborations are really important and to do some homework and some groundwork and to see what else is out there and to make sure that you're not going into a market that's perhaps too competitive. You don't want Merck to have 
90% of that market, you're going to make, it's going to be very difficult to, I'm just using Merck as an example, any large farmer, they have the money and the resources and the people and the time and the know-how and they've done it before to get a molecule through that entire process and into patients. So it's not easy. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I could only imagine. But then what about the other way? The best thing about being a scientist coming into this is to understanding how statistics work and what's the difference between statistical significance and clinical benefit and not mixing up those words and understanding that just because something has a p-value of less than 0.05 does not necessarily mean that it's going to have any clinical benefit for patients I'm talking about drugs here. We can also talk about things like medical devices or therapeutic or diagnostic tests or services. It's a large field. It doesn't just focus on drugs or molecules, but I have a little bit been talking about those specifically now just to stick with a single example to make it more clear. So I think that these are the sorts of things that being a scientist is really useful for and that a lot of investors don't get so that you can have a company that seems to be doing very well with the way that they present some things that present particular type of statistics. But it, most scientists would see that as a double manipulation of data. Say if you use a set of statistics to come up with one way of looking at some data and then you apply another set of statistics. I'm not talking about sub-analysis, but another set of statistics on your first group of data. That comes up a lot in investor presentations and it looks very compelling. But when you're a scientist, and most scientists have been doing this for years and years, you understand that that suggests that perhaps the data is not quite as strong as the company is trying to present it as. Again, that's not always the case, and I'm not suggesting that any particular company have done that or I don't want to sound down, but just to bring those two sets of skills, you're quite right. There are skills that aren't available to both given the background, so I think that it's important to perhaps learn a little bit about each of those particular field specialties, yeah. shall we call them. No, excellent. And then to thinking about Bell Potter for a moment, you mentioned at the start you touched on ASX-listed companies. So is it just purely you're focusing on ASX-listed companies? Is that right? That's correct. We only focus on ASX-listed companies. The people in the corporate finance team, they will be involved in managing some pre-IPO raises as well. So obviously I'm not in the corporate finance team, so I wouldn't want to say too much, but certainly companies approach us before their listing to do pre-IPO type raises, all of the lead up raises to the IPO. So that's also something that they do. Obviously that's not something for our retail advisors and retail investors. A lot of those funds that buy and sell through our institutional sales desk will also be contacted by our corporate finance team to work through those early raises pre-IPO and right up to the IPO float or listing. So when you're looking at ASX listed companies and we're focusing particularly right now on investing into that life sciences space, what are some of the things you think about, perhaps at a general sense, that about investing into ASX-listed life sciences companies? Good question. So the first thing would be any preclinical and any early clinical trial data, first and foremost. Of course, we look at those and see if that's reasonable and suggestive of a bright future for that particular molecule. It will stay with the molecular example. The next thing I would be doing is looking at the total addressable market. 
how many people would be benefiting from this drug if it makes it to market? What cost frames do drugs in a similar grouping cost at? How much do they cost? So it depends. Are they an orphan drug? Are they a drug, a biologic, etc.? Then what else is on the market and what are the available treatments? Are they successful? Do they miss a group of people within that disease frame? Does that change, increase, decrease the addressable market? The regulatory pathways. So how far away are they? And what kind of discount would we be looking at putting on? So when we calculate our valuation of company, we have to put a discount on what we expect that the company is worth, the value of the company. When it comes to healthcare and biotech, the way that the discount is calculated is what is the probability that it will make it through approval? So if we pick a particular region, let's stick with the USA, for example, probably the largest region in terms of costs because the pricing of drugs in the USA is the most expensive in the world. Plus they have a huge population. There's those two things. So let's just work with the USA for the purposes of this conversation. What kind of probability does this drug have of making it through the market? That depends on where we are. So if the drug is at the end of its phase three trial and the phase three trial was successful, then we go to the literature and we determine what are the historical success and failure rates for a similar drug at that stage. And so it might be a probability of around about 80 to 90%. If it's come through a phase three trial with successful outcomes, it's met its primary endpoints its secondary endpoints were also met. Best case scenario, that the probability of that drug being approved by the FDA at that stage is around the 80 to 90%. And you would look it up. You go to the literature. You don't just come up with a number. You actually use analyzed stats about that. So if the drug is at the end of the phase two trial rather than the phase three, you times that 0.8 or the 80% by the same statistics that it takes for a drug historically to get from the end of the phase two. So it would be the final value would be around about 30 to 50% chance. So 0.3. And you work back that way, then phase one, et cetera. It's quite, you have to use some very specific numbers and you get those numbers just like you would in science where you go to the literature to look at what has happened beforehand, very similar, and you come up with those discount numbers. That's interesting that you referenced that, you know, the similarities to science, because I'm also thinking similarities to, I guess, if you were looking to invest into other totally different industries, you would still want to look at all of those, I guess, strategic points and financial points around the total addressable market and time to market, et cetera. But then where the, it sounds like a lot of the complexity or magic happens, because it's this interesting kind of situation where you're investing in something that doesn't quite exist yet. And even before it's that whole kind of beforehand stage, trying to work out if this is a viable product or not. And that process takes a long time. Yes. And the scary thing about a lot of this is the outcome tends to be binary. The drug makes it through, we all make money, the drug is rejected, we all lose everything. And a lot of people are averse to that kind of risk when it comes to investing their money and that's quite understandable. This is why it's good to start following companies that you might have an interest in, perhaps before becoming involved in actual investing or just choosing a small amount of money to begin with to start to I want to say the word play, but that sounds a little bit 
dip the toes. Yeah. Yeah, to wet your toes and to start to work out the kinds of patterns that occur when you're investing in biotech. So nobody has a crystal ball. Nobody knows what the FDA or TGA or the EMA in Europe are going to decide. But what you can do is set yourself up with the best set of facts and background that could help you make a better guess. <laughs> what is a, a decision? <laughs> in the end, yeah. There's all that risk and the reasons why people wouldn't get involved in or might be deterred from investing in life sciences. So why do you find that people definitely want to get involved? And also you go through that lens of from an ASX listed company as well. Is it just about the financial returns? Is there something more than that? No, I think that you'll find some people are interested because they have a desire to help biotech, for example, from Australia, if you're an Australian. And I think we have a really good history of terrific science. And I think that it also supports the company to buy shares in that company. And if you think that this company is working on something that's important to yourself, then perhaps that would be a motivating factor to take risk, even if you're not sure about the outcome to buy shares in that company. And I think that it's a combination of both. Of course, everybody, we need our money to live our lives and put in our wills for our children and send them off to schools and whatnot. But the point, of course, is that your money's not going to make a lot sitting in a bank. So a better option might be to invest it. If you're considering investing in listed companies, this is the sort of thing you would do. Obviously, as I've said to you before, Pete, we started, I can't give any advice and I don't want this to sound like investing advice. It's absolutely not. And the one thing I would say to people is it's a very good idea to have a retail advisor on your side, a company like Bell Potter or others to work through all of these nuances with somebody who has a really good understanding and dedicates their lives to understanding these sorts of things is important. Yes, you would absolutely need that. Any other final thoughts or things for people to consider who might be looking at getting more involved in investing with the appropriate support into life sciences? Yes, I mentioned the binary outcomes that can occur. So another good thing to look for is does the company have more than one asset, for example? Have they had success in the past? What does their management team look like? And the sorts of things, of course, that you would do for any listed company, not just in the healthcare sector. But I think that it's important. Again, obviously, use your retail advisor. Absolutely use your retail advisor. I can't give advice here. When I cover a company, I look at all of this and comparisons with other companies that have done something similar or in the same field. These are all really important when considering. This podcast has been brought to you by Life Sciences WA, which is Western Australia's Life Sciences Industry Association, in collaboration with Talking Health Tech. It's been made possible with funding support from the Western Australian Government through the New Industries Fund and the Ready Initiative, managed by MTP Connect on behalf of the Medical Research Future Fund and with the support of Ant Health. If you liked this episode, please complete the feedback survey. There's a link to that survey you can access from within your podcast player. You can also follow Life Sciences WA on LinkedIn and Twitter or subscribe to the mailing list at lifesciencewa.com.au.